Welcome to the Arlington Street Church podcast. Founded in 1729, Arlington Street continues today as a gathering place for progressive people of faith in the greater Boston area and beyond. We are located at the corner of Arlington and Boylston Streets, across from the Public Garden in Boston, Massachusetts. Please visit ASCBoston.org for more information about this historic Unitarian Universalist congregation. Arlington Street Church, gathered in love and service for justice and peace. Picture, if you will, Mike Ward, a handsome 70-something, six-foot-four-inch gentleman standing in the pulpit now. You could close your eyes, it would help. Um, He's reading from The Sea is Quiet Tonight, a memoir set in the early 1980s. This is a snapshot from that time. Jerry Groupman left a message with my service to call him, saying he had news. I was afraid he was going to ask if I'd had the node biopsied, and since I had not yet been approved for new health insurance, I had not. But it was news of a different sort. Robert Gallo at the NIH has developed what he hopes to be a test to detect the virus for AIDS. At the moment, it's being called HTLV3. Soon he's going to be collecting blood samples from gay men in New York, San Francisco, and Boston, and will do a study to determine the accuracy of his test. You can be in the first cohort to be tested if you're willing. Yes, I said, my grandfather Murray used to say, the devil you know is better than the devil you don't know. If the devil is in my blood, I guess it's better to know. Despite the lighthearted sound of my response, I felt sobered. I had my blood drawn for the study in mid-May. The gamma interferon group Mark had been part of had finished in mid-April without producing statistically significant results, though he obviously had benefited from the drug. He and Richard were on to new vitamins and whey protein in large doses. As he said, ironically, desperate men require desperate measures. When I told him I had enrolled in Dr. Gallo's trial for HTLV3, he didn't say much, but asked every few days if I'd heard anything. I reassured him that when I did, he would be the first to know. I did a substantial amount of obsessing while I ran. Do I have the virus? Do I have antibodies? If I'm sick, how will I manage knowing and still continue to take care of Mark? All six of the original members of Mark's group were still alive, but others that I'd only heard about had joined the group and died within a few months. And there was a progression in symptoms among all of them. The face of AIDS was drawing nearer to me personally. No matter what the results of Dr. Gallo's tests were, I knew the information would change me and change us. If I were healthy, I feared it would further separate me from Mark, making me the well partner rather than the apparently well partner. If I were sick, I'd be joining him in his illness. In early June, we hit a hard patch. Without the gamma, Mark was tiring more easily again. I drove him down to New York City on a Friday to stay for two nights with close friends and to meet with his attorney. He perked up when we crossed over the Triborough Bridge into Manhattan, clearly looking forward being away from the gloom of Boston. 
I dropped him off at the attorney's office and then drove out to Fire Island for a couple of nights by myself. Knowing that he was with people who loved him relieved me briefly of my hypervigilance. We had one short phone call check-in on a Saturday morning. He sounded fine. I spent the two days walking the long stretch of beach between Cherry Grove and the Pines, crisscrossing the boardwalks we had walked, passing the house where we'd spent our first night together. By this time, two more of six roommates with whom he had shared that house were sick. AIDS was inescapable. I was reminded of Mark at every turn. In the late afternoons, I sat at the bar in the Monster drinking beer, simply trying to allow my central nervous system to calm down. It was a relief to be alone and to zone out. I felt like a soldier on furlough from the front. When Mark arrived in Cherry Grove on Sunday, he was ashen and short of breath. As near as I could put together, he was responding to what had happened in Boston in the few days since we'd been gone. His friends in the PWA group were under siege. Pedro Martinez had died the day we left. David Tiffany remained in a coma, and Richard was convinced he would be next to make three. It took hours for Mark to settle down, and I believe that our being separated had been a bad idea. He was used to a more protected environment at home. While he'd gotten done what he needed to do in the city, the stimulation and pay pace had rattled him. He said repeatedly, I shouldn't have left Boston. I shouldn't have left the guys. I knew it was fruitless to suggest that his presence would have changed nothing. We spent the whole evening cuddling on the sofa and talking, me rubbing his back, and the rigidity in his body gradually diminished. We left for Boston the next day. A week later, in the afternoon of Monday, June 11th, I got a message from my answering service to call Jerry Groupman. I had two clients left to see before going from Cambridge to Brookline for David Tiffany's memorial service. He had died a few days after we returned to Boston. I debated postponing the call until the next morning, but found myself dialing the, the number from memory. When I identified myself to the office manager, she put me through to Jerry immediately. There was no small talk. You tested positive for the HDLV3 virus, Mike. Don't jump to conclusions about this. These are the very first clinical trials. What we know is that everyone who has AIDS has HDLV3, and there are many men in these trials who have it but seem otherwise healthy. Some may never develop full-blown AIDS. Listening to him, I had my first experience of going into shock. Did he just say that I have the virus? I sat down, afraid I was going to pass out. I was silent long enough that he said, are you there? Yes, Jerry, I'm sorry. I'm at work and have to see a client now. I heard my voice completely toneless, but felt powerless to respond otherwise. Thank you for calling. He said, Mike, don't panic. At this point, we believe the incubation period is two to five years. We're learning so much now, it might just mean that you're just a carrier. Right. And it just might mean that I'm dead in the water. 
I stared blankly out the window for a few moments and still in shock met with my clients one after the other. I felt grateful that the professional habit of listening closely kept me present to their work, although later I couldn't remember a word I'd said. David's memorial service was held in the garden of a mansion in Brookline. It was a hot but beautiful early summer evening and dozens of people were scattered across the lawn. Guests had been asked to wear white instead of black and at first sight they looked like wraiths or angels. I tried to relax and appear normal, smiling, greeting friends, heartache arising as I remembered that this was the third memorial service in two months for people from Mark's original group. These losses were happening so quickly now. I was also worried about the impact of my diagnosis on Mark. I knew he would be devastated, and I tried futilely to figure out a way to soften the news. But how do you soften a potential death sentence? The service was structured as a Quaker meeting. People shared as they felt moved to with long silences between speakers. Finally, we stood in a large circle, hand in hand, while a man played blowing in the wind on a harpsichord that had been placed in a gazebo. The only time I cried was when Mark spoke about his friendship with David, how much he would miss being able to count on his courage and sense of humor. Wine and soft drinks were then available and people milled around. I got Richard and Patrick alone for a few minutes and told them about the test results. Richard hugged me and asked, does Mark know? I'll tell him when we get home, or maybe tomorrow. No, Richard said firmly, let him know tonight. He's done nothing but worry about it for weeks. I could see Mark working his way toward us through the small crowd and said, let's just talk about David's service now. Later, when I told Mark, he was silent for a long time. We were sitting in the bay window looking west down the river toward the remnants of the sunset and he reached over and took my hand. I had spoken calmly and repeated all the reassuring things Jerry had said to me. Finally, he said, I wonder if we need to change our game plan. What's our game plan, I asked. Despite the threat of you having ARC, we've been operating for many months as if I'm the patient here. But if you become sick, we'll need to think about how to take care of you as well. I felt a rush of love for him, so grave and worn out from these last difficult weeks. We carried so much grief, the losses of our friends, the pressures of these long months, and the false promise of Mark regaining his health. I think we stay with the game plan we have, sweetheart. I feel fine physically, other than being tired and scared. Let's go on the assumption I'm a carrier until proven otherwise. Who knows, someday one of the drugs or treatments they come up with may work and you'll get better. We'll all get better. And now Mike has finished reading and I'm here in the pulpit to complete our shared sermon. Mark was the 100th person to be diagnosed with AIDS in the Commonwealth. In 1995, 11 years after his death, 
AIDS had become the leading cause of death among Americans aged 25 to 44. The death toll in the United States was 319,849. The next year, the combination of medicines known as the AIDS cocktail was first introduced to people infected with HIV. Almost overnight, people whose lives hung in the balance as they wasted from the virus began to regain their health. Here in the developed world, the relentless plague of AIDS, though far from eradication, was finally slowed and contained. There was a time we had assumed it would kill us all. We had been told it could not be stopped in our lifetime. And although it was too late for Mark and for so many we loved, the invention of the cocktail was nothing short of a miracle. The question then for all of us who had survived was the same question as it is for everyone who lives on beyond the death of a loved one. What do we do now? How do we live on? I don't know. But I do know that at best, the death of someone we love is like an alarm going off in our lives. We awaken to the questions, what would they want for us? How can we live in a way that honors them? Poet Mary Lee Hall wrote, if I should die and leave you here a while, be not like others, sore undone, who keep long vigils by the silent dust and weep. For my sake, turn again to life and smile, nerving thy heart and trembling hand to do something to comfort weaker hearts than thine. Complete those dear, unfinished tasks of mind, and I, perchance, may therein comfort you. When we want to feel close to those who have gone before us, do something in memory of them. When we're bereft, reach out, comfort others, and so be comforted. In The Probable Future, American author Alice Hoffman writes, this conversation about living on, her character Eleanor asks a doctor where people are after death. Silly to ask him as though he knew, but in fact, the doctor didn't hesitate, writes Alice Hoffman. Where are people after death? He took Eleanor's hand and placed it on his chest in the place where he knew his heart to be. Here. Eleanor smiled and thought, at last, at last, someone had told her the truth. Beloved spiritual companions, 
place your hand on your chest over the place you know your heart to be. Our dead live here. When in our grief we open our broken hearts to remember, to serve, and to love. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. We would love to hear from you via email at office at ASCBoston.org or through our Facebook page. If you would like to support the good work of Arlington Street Church, please consider a contribution by checking the mail or through our website, ASCBoston.org.